Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Dave Kabula. Based in Calgary, Dave is the founder and managing principal consultant at Tricon Elite Consulting and a Microsoft Most Valuable Professional and Microsoft Evangelist who has led architecture teams for virtualization, system center, exchange, active directory, and internet gateways, amongst many other things in his over 20 years of IT industry experience. He's also a popular conference speaker and organizer and the co-chair of Tech Mentor, which has provided professional how-to IT training and education since 1998. Along with his colleagues, Dave is the co-author of a number of books, uh, including the multi-volume master PowerShell Trick Series and a two-volume series on deploying System Center Virtual Machine Manager. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Dave Kawula, and you can check out his website at checkyourlogs.net. In this interview, we're going to talk about Dave's background and career, professional interests, uh, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience uh, writing and self-publishing. So thank you, Dave, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here, Len. I'm, I'm glad to uh, have taken the opportunity to sit down and chat with you today. Thanks. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in you know, computers and, and IT. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got an interesting background, um, especially when it comes to IT. So um, I grew up in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, so small town Saskatchewan kid. And uh, believe it or not, my first love was not uh, technology, was not IT. Uh, I wanted to be an NHL hockey player, just like most kids that were growing up in Saskatchewan. And uh, my you know, semi-professional hockey career took me all the way up to playing junior A hockey in Alberta and British Columbia and played three years there. And unfortunately, had to stop because of some health issues and concussions like most have today. And kind of glad I did stop now, especially after all the research that's come out and kind of fell back on... Um, uh, are kind of my original roots, which was IT. And so, so back to those days, my parents actually got started in technology in the early 80s. They opened one of the first computer consulting companies and computer schools all the way back in, uh, I think it's 1981, called PC Computer School. Got some grants from the government, set up some computer labs, and we're, we're doing early day computer training off of IBM mainframes. And so I grew up around this. So when I was knee high coming into the office, learning all about technology from my parents, um, they spawned that off into a successful consulting organization. And in 1993 or 94, uh, my brother and I actually took over that business from them. So we ran that in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan until about 2002. At that point in time, I moved to Calgary, you know, went went kind of where the, the oil and gas and the big boom in Alberta. I was in the heydays of the, of the boom. And where I really got my start, Len, was about a year and a half after I moved to Calgary, I got headhunted off of uh, my monster resume by Microsoft. And so I ended up doing a series of uh, national road shows for Microsoft um, talking about technology and they liked that so much, they actually got me into writing internal content for the Microsoft platform teams. So myself and my wife and our team that we had, we worked on about 65 different projects authoring content for Microsoft platform and product teams internally. And so that's kind of where we got our deep dive into technology. And so now that spawned off, we've started up kind of our own little publishing company for other Microsoft MVPs and community evangelists. 
And to date, I think we're up to 11 books or so that we published. And we're so happy to actually have your platform, your LeanPub platform now, as our preferred mechanism for getting our content out there. Uh, thanks for that that great story. Um, uh, I'm from Saskatchewan myself. Um, I grew up in uh, Saskatoon and Regina and went to school in Rostern for a little while, uh, which is not too far, as I recall, from Prince Albert. Yeah, um, not far at all. Um, uh, and I wanted to ask you uh, just one question about the hockey background, which I didn't know about. Uh, what, what position did you play? I was a big power forward. And uh, what was the, what was it? What was it like? I mean, were you on the road a lot when you were when you were playing? Did you like stay in sort of small town hotels with your team? Oh yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I played, I played my competitive uh, bantam and midget hockey all over Saskatchewan. So played bantam AAA and midget AAA. Had a brief stint with the Prince Albert Raiders and the WHL. Played a few exhibition games before I went and stepped into my junior A career. And you you got to know and love your bus very well. You had pre-assigned seats. And so the rule on the bus was if you were a veteran on the bus and it was after the game, you got to sleep on the floor of the bus. And if you were a rookie, you got the chairs and you had to somehow wiggle your way in. So the vets would kind of sleep underneath all of the chairs and the rookies would sit sideways and have to cram themselves in. And some of our road trips were as long as eight hours away for a game. So, yeah, you got you got used to to spending a lot of time on the road. Uh, and was this pre pre iPod days? This was pre iPod days. This was uh, we we did have CD players, so that was that was a big benefit. We were just past you know the Walkman stage, and CDs were just kind of just kind of coming out and being mainstream. But you know we didn't we didn't have iPods that were jam packed full of full of tunes. We actually took and were cutting our own um, CDs at the time on the bus, so we had our own master mixes. Yeah, I remember those days. It's it's why I asked because uh, you know it's it's something that we all take for granted now. The kind of options we have available when we're traveling uh, for entertainment. But back in those days, you might carry around like a backpack full of CDs and specially designed sort of sleeves. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and actually, another thing I wanted to ask you about the hockey is, um, you know, one of the things that hockey is well known for is it's the only sport where fighting is conventionally permitted uh and one of the things i heard growing up in saskatchewan is that often at the junior levels it was um encouraged uh and i just wanted to ask you about that did you did you get in hockey fights yeah i've been in a i've been in a few i've been in a few yeah so you know, it was interesting because when you grow up and you're playing the game, it, it adds a way different dynamic because you don't really see fighting in the game until you get into the junior levels because there are some pretty stiff uh, penalties. You get like a three-game suspension if you took off your helmet in the younger younger years, so you didn't really see anybody fighting. So it just is part of the game, and you know, it was, it was part of uh, that that lifestyle that you know you you don't touch players on my team, and if you cross that line, then there's kind of a, a penalty or a price to be paid. Um, I came through my hockey career kind of at the tail end of where a coach would tap you on the shoulder saying, hey, you know, you got to go take care of this. They actually weren't allowed to do that. So Hockey Canada had actually just come in the year that I had started with some new rules. So it was a little bit of an adjustment and a learning curve for our coaches. So we would we would get comments like, well, I can't tell you what to do, but I'm pretty sure you know what to do. <laughs> and uh, do you think that um, 
fighting is going to continue to be a part of the sport? Um, I think the game has changed a lot because I think it's a lot faster now. Um, I think a lot of the thugs that were in the game, um, just they're not fast enough to play. So if if something happens and, you know, it's just a hockey play and, you know, I think I think that hockey, that fighting does serve a good a good purpose in the game. But I don't think it needs to be something where it's showboated uh, around the arena. If it's something that happens and two players get mad at one another, I'd much rather see a fight than them swinging their sticks at one another. Uh, before we before we move on to um, uh, your professional work, um, one of the privileges of this podcast that I do with people from all around the world is that I get to ask them about the places that they're from. Um, I haven't interviewed anyone from Calgary for the podcast before, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the city. Um, starting a few years ago, it experienced a pretty significant economic downturn. I've had friends and family of my own who were caught up in it some directly, some indirectly. And I've heard all sorts of stories about the sort of downtown feeling empty. Um, how would you say things are looking for Calgary these days? Um, I think I think that we're just starting to come out of it right now. Um, you're absolutely right. That feeling of, you know, emptiness downtown is definitely there. You can actually find parking downtown, which you had a very difficult time finding uh, in the past. And I found that uh, the companies that were able to evolve and adjust were the ones that were able to survive and the ones that, um, that weren't as agile. Yeah, you, you take and you lose, you lose all your contracts. You're a field service company and the company that's giving you all the contracts goes out of business. Well, there's, there's deep ramifications through and through. So, so it, it, came, it came fast. It came quick. Um, I think one of the things that I've found after having lived in Calgary for now over 15 years is that people in Alberta, Alberta are very resilient. Um, we're used to this kind of stuff. I think it catches more of the rest of the country off guard. But, you know, Alberta has been uh, boom or bust for, you know, the last 30, 40 years. So when it's good, it's really good. And, you know, the economy's vibrant and it's humming along. And when it's not, uh, we just kind of trained ourselves to, you know, back off on the spend and, you know, just try to survive. It's interesting you mentioned backing off on the spend. Um, one of the things about Calgary that I've always found interesting is exactly what you're just talking about, that there's actually an, an explicit self-awareness about managing uh, bad times in the economy. So one of the last times I was there, I went into a liquor store and just got out a conversation with the woman behind the till. And she said, yeah, people are tightening their belts. You know, we're not, it's not so busy these days. So people don't, don't sort of panic in the way that, that you might in other places where ups and downs are less familiar. People actually talk about it. They talk about how to handle, yeah. how to prepare. Um, you know, you do, you do also hear stories about, you know, guys working on the rig suddenly, you know, suddenly there are a lot of uh, used trucks available um, if people overextend, but uh, it's it's good to hear that uh, things are improving. Um, do you think that's because of the oil industry, or is have, have, are people adapting and doing other things now? No, we're we're primarily an, an oil centric province, and uh, what's ended up happening is that I I like to say that there was a lot of fat in the in the industry. And what's happened is these organizations have taken the opportunity to, to trim the fat. They figured out ways to optimize and kind of maintain their bottom line. 
and those that stuck around were they had a definite value proposition to those those companies those organizations because you're typically asked to do the work of two to three so if you don't want to do the work of two to three then you're going to be looking for a new job and if you can't do the work of two to three then you're going to be looking for a new job so either ramp up your skills or prepare to come into to work and actually work so there was a lot of individuals that would just come in and collect their paycheck and you know just kind of roll with it and most of that's gone now and that's that's what i find happens in alberta and it's going to come back in you're just going to need bodies to fill chairs to do projects and you know that that type of thing is going to happen again especially if oil pops up over you know a hundred dollars again but what a lot of people don't realize is that the spend that the oil companies have is actually deferred for a few years so they're actually budgeting for two years ahead based on what the the, the oil is now so even if it goes up to 150 dollars it doesn't change much for them because they're already set to spend the way that they are and uh going back to your uh background in your career um that was a really interesting story about your parents um, one thing I noticed, uh, looking, looking you up on LinkedIn was I didn't see any reference to sort of formal IT education, uh, and talking about that is actually one of the sort of unofficial themes of this podcast, because I talk mm -hmm. to so many people who are in, in software and computers and from so many different backgrounds. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? So your, your training, did it, did it come from working with your parents? It did. It did actually. So, uh, so <laughs> an interesting story. Um, I learned what I did in the industry from my brother. He was, he was actually the, the whiz kid with computers. I was, I was the hockey jock and I would just kind of hang out with him as, you know, he was coding Microsoft access databases or figuring stuff out. And I was just kind of learning, learning with him through osmosis. We were, there was only the two of us in the family. So we were very, very close, uh, growing up. And uh, and so he he kind of showed me the the ropes as to how to do a lot of these things, and then I, I just I was able to pick up and learn very quickly. And a, a real funny story back in the the early '90s was um, my brother and I uh, in a small town Saskatchewan. So you have to understand that these, these are different times. It's it's not it's not like today where you know you think I was a 12, 13 year old kid. He was 15. Neither of us could drive. There was a bid for the city of Prince Albert for IT support services. Um, we won the bid for IT support services. We were supporting the payroll, tax roll, billing systems. And I remember that they had a compact ProLiant um, 7000. It's this huge server that was in there. And it was just a single server. It would run the entire city of Prince Albert. But it was running on, a, on an alpha chipset. And uh, what happened was Microsoft stopped supporting the alpha chipset. So then they had to get the engineers in from Compaq at the time to come swap the server up. Can you imagine the look on that engineer from Compaq <laughs> coming into Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, having a 15 and a 13 year old kid sitting there and having to show us, you know, what he was doing because we were taking over for him. And uh, I always look back on that, that story and, you know, going and pulling cable. I have no idea how we would have made it past workman's compensation today. 13 and 15 year old kid up on ladders, pulling coaxial cable, showing people that they're actually not terminating ends properly. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that we did from a very, very early age. And I think if we had grown up in the big city, that wouldn't have been possible because nobody would have accepted that. But because we were in small town Saskatchewan, 
there was a little more leniency around it because there was just nobody else to do the work. You couldn't just go fly somebody in from Toronto to come do this stuff. So when you had local resources, you used them and you supported them. Now, understand that this was under the very watchful um, um, eyes of both my parents who are chartered accountants by trade. So they knew that, you know, mom and dad were always looking out for things. And, you know, if we would take and sell, uh, sell PCs or sell equipment, um, we weren't able to write checks. We would have to take the, take the invoice into dad and he'd have to check it and sign it off. And same thing with ordering from suppliers. We would do all the work up to the point where we would actually pay for stuff. So they would say, okay, make sure it's all set up and done properly. And they would help us start to work through getting our books. So even although I didn't formally go away to get trained on this, I was kind of formally getting trained. And the other thing that happened with this was uh, when I was in grade four going into grade five, uh, my parents made the decision to pull us out of the public school system and uh, homeschool us. Now, it wasn't traditional homeschooling we think of. And we were on the front line. Like homeschooling wasn't popular and wasn't cool like what it is right now. We were like, the, the teachers in the public school system were not real happy that my mom and dad pulled us out, but they just... They, they didn't really like what was happening there, so they thought that they could they could do it better. And where we actually did our schooling was uh, at the office. So we were at their firm, and and side-by-side side with their firm was the kind of computer consulting um, store. So we really quite literally grew up around this. That's a really great story. Thanks for telling that. Um, one, of the, one of the features I liked so much about it was the theme of, I suppose, scarcity of resources. Um, you know, that's why the this city of Prince Albert needed needed you guys. And that's why it sounds to me sort of why your parents, they couldn't just shop you. They couldn't just take you around to a bunch of different schools because there probably weren't a bunch of different schools. The the school I went to in, in Rostern that I mentioned, uh, the small town of Rostern, uh, was um, created by Mennonite farmers uh, back in the 1910s um, because they didn't like the local school, school systems either not not for particularly re religious or ideological reasons they just didn't think they were good enough um and so you uh eventually moved to calgary like a lot of other people from from saskatchewan were you were you um chasing opportunity or just you know there wasn't there wasn't enough around for you to to grow where you were yeah, I had gotten married in uh, in 1999, so my wife moved to Saskatchewan. We were there for about uh, a year and a half, and uh, we decided to head down the road of uh, getting our Microsoft certification. So instead of instead of having um, gone away and formally uh, taken the set of typical training center, we actually flew in the trainers to come in and train us and our employees that we had at the time, because my brother and I were running a successful um, IT consulting company, so we had a handful of employees. So it was cheaper for us to fly in the trainers and bring them in to get certified. So we flew them in um, to get certified, uh, to get us certified. And then when we saw they were like, hey, this would be pretty cool. I kind of like, I think we can teach. I think we can actually do this. And so we looked into the Microsoft Certified Trainer Program to see what the requirements were. And basically, you had to sit a special course called the Train the Trainer, and you could hire a contractor to come in and deliver that for you, which we did. And so uh, shortly thereafter, after we had uh, achieved our first set of certifications, we became trainers ourselves. And uh, it was actually my wife that uh, called around into Calgary 
and uh, she said, "Hey, I've got this. I've got this young guy. He's, you know, he's really smart, and he just needs a chance because nobody wanted to give the new trainer a chance, especially a twenty-year-old kid coming in. And, you know, uh, what exactly do you know coming from Saskatchewan to come talk to these big oil and gas companies? And so eventually, she she found one. It was a company called, um, I think it was a company called Metaphor." And they said, yep, we're going to give you a shot. And so I thought, okay, well, we'll do this class. And this was, uh, this was adult education. I must have prepped for 80 hours for this 40-hour course or even more. Maybe like it, it must have been three weeks I was prepping to deliver this one-week course. And when I showed up on the Monday morning, they had 18 people, seasoned IT professionals in this course and it was a big migration, migrating from uh, Windows NT4 to Windows 2000, which was the new operating system, Microsoft flagship operating system at the time. And I ended up rocking it. They, they loved it. And the feedback I got from, you know, the 17, 18 people, they said, hey, listen, you know what? We love it. We learned a ton. We got exactly what we needed to out of the course. Please bring them back. We want to have them again. And so it started with one and then started doing a few more like that. And uh, and eventually uh, my workload started to shift where I was on the road about 50% of the time. And I was actually commuting from Prince Albert to Calgary. So I would leave on the I would leave on the Sunday uh, afternoon and I would get to Calgary at probably around nine o'clock. We'd stay at some friend's house. I stay at a friend's house and then work the week and then leave on Friday, come home on the Saturday. So really only seeing my wife about, you know, 18 hours a week, which is pretty typical for people that work up north. And, you know, um, especially in Fort Mac, you know, you work shift work was kind of like that. But, you know, put on about 60,000 kilometers on the vehicle that year. And uh, we made the decision that, you know, it's time to make a bit of a change. So I sold the company to my brother, which he still runs today. It's called PA Software. It's very successful. And uh, I think they actually just had their 20th Year, year anniversary of PA software, and uh, and then we moved to Calgary and kind of haven't looked back since. Uh, I've got a couple of questions about um, the kind of work you do. Uh, before I before I ask them, though, I should mention that Fort Fort Mac is a reference to Fort McMurray. Um, oh yeah. And if you want to learn about that, there's a the best Canadian movie ever made is called Fubar Two. Uh, get that movie and watch it, and you'll understand everything you need to know about Fort McMurray and the oil industry and and working up north. Um, so you mentioned uh, getting Microsoft certification, and uh, I wanted—I've got a, a sort of speci relatively specific question, which is that um, I think I think in the popular imagination, sort of everybody knows what a programmer is these days. Um, they know, you know, they know from movies like Hackers that you sit in front of a computer and you drink a lot of coffee and you know you you you, you type away. Uh, but can you describe the kind of work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I. I never went down that road of the of the developer side. So there's kind of two different worlds that uh, that we have in IT, and we're working very hard to bridge these two worlds because they are very different. There is a development world where you have the quote unquote coders. They're the ones that are going to take and um, drink a gallon of coffee a day and never leave their office. And then you have the operations side. So the operations side is is where I come from. 
And so we're the ones that will actually uh, architect, design, and configure these racks of servers. And we provide the infrastructure so that the developers have something to code on. And so we make sure all the pretty little lights in the data center stay green and that the businesses stay running. And the developers do kind of all of the optimizations and um, business process and coding around those um, applications that run those businesses. So are you, are you, you know, actually like picking things up and putting them in place and hooking them together? Is that, is that the kind of thing that you do? Um, yeah, I guess. I, I don't really do so much of that anymore, but that was a big part of what I did for a very long time. Uh, once you get it, we, what we call racked and stacked. So, you know, put, take it out of the box, put the rails on the server, put it into the rack. Somebody needs to deploy the operating system on there, be it Linux or be it Windows. Um, we would take and take care of that and we would get it to a point that it was viable for the business. And then, you know, we would look after all aspects of disaster recovery, you know, upgrades, optimizations and so on. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the stuff we would do. I've, um, talked to a lot of people, uh, um, on the kind of development side, including, you know, project leads and things like that about their relationship with management. What's the relationship like between ops and, and management? Um, it's, it's actually very, very close because typically what you'll have is you'll have a head of operations and you'll have a head of development and they'll re typically report directly up to an IT director who will then kind of form the, you know, um, the C-suite where you'll have the chief information officer, security officers, and all of those department heads will kind of roll up. Um, there has to be a very, very tight relationship there because if we're not doing our job properly and we're not able to provide a platform for them um, that allows them to deploy their code fast enough, they're slowed down, the business is impacted. And uh, nobody wants to be the one that has that's getting their finger pointed at them, right? And so I find that um, now the levels of communication between these different departments is so much better than what it was 10, 15 years ago when I was kind of breaking into this. Um, there was a lot of headbutting. Like, for example, you didn't really go talk to the network team. You asked them what you wanted. You provided them with a list of requirements, and they would just make it so. And it provided some challenges, because if you made any mistakes with that, then stuff just wouldn't work. And... Whereas nowadays, everybody tries to get together to try to make sure that the projects run a lot more seamlessly. And now we're into a real world of the concept of touching a physical server is really going away. Now we're into cloud, software defined everything. So we've almost virtualized our job roles. We've virtualized ourselves. So now that networking engineer is really uh, quasi developer slash operations guy slash networking guy. And so that's the big evolution that I've seen is that you don't have one role anymore. If you're not able to wear those multiple hats, you're kind of useless to that organization because you need to see the big picture. And so for myself, I know that that's where I've had to evolve. Although I say I'm not a developer or a coder, I've been training myself and learning PowerShell for you know the past 10 years or so. And I still find that compared to a lot of my friends who are absolute, we'll call it, if you had to pick out of a scale of one to 100, they're like 97 out of 100 smart on this particular technology. I feel like when I talk to those guys, I'm maybe at like 30, but I can do an awful lot with 30. And so 
um, everybody's got their different specialties that they have that they're really good at. And so what I always tell people is find two things that you specialize in, that those are your go-to. Like what are the two things that you're, you can act absolutely no one understand like the back of your hand and then everything else just becomes additional um, resources that you can draw upon, but always have at least a minimum of two that you're really, really good at. And you, you talked earlier about uh, flying people in to train you for the Microsoft certification. And I, I mentioned in the introduction that you're a Microsoft MVP. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that is. What is What does it mean to get a Microsoft certification or certification, or, or what did it mean back in the day when you did it? Uh, as you say, things have changed a lot. And, and what does it mean to be an MVP? Yeah, absolutely. So so two two kind of different sides. The the training and certification part is available for anybody. I think the only requirement is that you have to be, I believe, a minimum of 18 years of age or more to get a certification from Microsoft. Don't quote me on that. That's just, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so so um, I know that you, you just, you, you can't be like a, a 10 year old kid and go and write the exams, but I could be wrong on that too. Maybe they've changed those rules as well. But um, the, the general streams of training and certification have always been, especially for Microsoft, split into to two different sides. There's been a developer stream of training, and then there's been a um, operation side of training. So one was called the Microsoft Certified System Engineer, or MCSE, and the other one was called the MCSD, or the Microsoft, uh, the Microsoft Certified uh, Solution Developer, and that was kind of their, their realm that they had. And so those have always kind of stuck around. And so that's that was what people would attain to try to, you know, prove that, you know, they they knew what it was that they were talking about. And uh, over the years, it, it kind of changed a little bit where companies weren't as interested in the fact that you had a Microsoft designation behind your name. Um, they were more interested. Can you actually do the work? You know, just because you pass an exam doesn't mean that you're going to be proficient sitting at a, a console. We called them book smart engineers instead of kind of blood and guts uh, support engineers who had actually been there and could actually fix something. And so uh, those organizations would change their interviewing policy saying, hey, listen, we're looking for somebody that can do X. And we want to know if you're if you're if you're capable of doing this. I don't want to know if you've just gone and read a bunch of interview questions or something like that. We want to actually know if you've done this. So here's a keyboard. Do it. <laughs> you're going to find out real quick if somebody's fibbing a little bit on their on their profile if you take and if you do that. And so because it was a waste of time for everybody, right? So if you're going to come in and not be a viable resource inside of there, the HR personnel and headhunters. They could only do so much in terms of taking in uh, pre-scouting and pre-qualifying that talent that they were bringing in. And so so that was kind of the one side of the certification. Now, it's changed a little bit over the last few years. Microsoft's totally revamped that program. They've come up with a new realm of uh, certifications. There's new certifications now for um, Azure and AWS and a bunch of the cloud platforms. And those seem to be the really popular ones um, right now because everybody is seeming to get a little bit of a taste of the cloud right now. And then uh, on the other side is the Microsoft Most Valuable Professional, or the MVP. So if you go to my blog, uh, www.checkyourlogs.net, you'll see a ton of content up there on technology, our experiences in technology. And this is stuff that we share freely with the community. It's kind of our, our gift to the IT community 
um, our intellectual property that's just that's up there. We're not trying to shield this. We want to we want to share. And so that sharing first uh, mentality gets you noticed by a group at Microsoft, which is their community evangelists. And so that's how you end up getting that award. You can't actually apply for it. They just they give it to you as a recognition based award. Once again, it's available to anybody, but it's a recognition based award based on your blogs, based on your work in the community, public speaking, user groups, trying to empower and build the knowledge of those around you. That um, segues nicely into the next question I wanted to ask you, which was um, one thing I think people who are unfamiliar with the lives of IT professionals might not know is just how important it is in the industry to build communities and for people to get together. It's also one of the unofficial themes of this this podcast. Um, people often have a view that people in the IT world are sort of very reclusive and antisocial, um, but that misses an entire huge dimension of, of that life. Um, and I wanted to ask you specifically about your work building communities. Um, you founded an organization called MVP Days, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the challenges that, uh, that we faced, and this was kind of why MVP Days uh, came to be, was Microsoft used to put on um, community user-based conferences. And, and they were you wouldn't pay much to go to them. If you paid anything, it would be like 50 bucks and you'd go show up and they'd feed you. But they'd give you two days of amazing content. They'd bring in speakers from all, all over Canada or the U.S. And they would come to a central location and it was kind of our community-based conference. And it used to be called Tech Days. And uh, through different changes in initiatives at Microsoft and uh, lack of funding for kind of community projects from these larger companies, there was a gap there of about four to five years where we just didn't have any community events coming through anymore. And so uh, we decided to, to get together ourselves as a group of Microsoft MVPs and say, hey, you know what, I think we can do this. I think we can source a venue. We already have a really great line on speakers. We have a ton of friends that love to, that love to speak because one of our commitments as an MVP is to get up and do public speaking. But if you don't have a venue or a vehicle to actually do that, then how do you maintain your commitments to the program? So we were actually providing and creating speaking spots for uh, these local MVPs that we had so they can continue with the programs from Microsoft because what we get in Western Canada or Canada in general is a lot different than what you see in the U.S. There might be more opportunities to do that in the U.S. just because of population density. And so uh, we created that. And so the first run that we had was actually in Saskatoon, was our very first city that, uh, that, we, that we ran our first MVP Days event at. And it was a Western Canadian roadshow. We rolled through Saskatoon, Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver. We had a lineup of, I think there was around 20, 25 speakers that followed the roadshow around Western Canada and over 90 sessions. And that first run, the first run that we had, we talked to about five, 600 people. And uh, it was so successful that the, the folks from Microsoft Canada got behind us and they supported each of the ones that we've done. Uh, and they said, listen, we would like you to do this, but help us in Eastern Canada because there's nothing like this that exists in Eastern Canada either. So we branched out later that year and we did Ottawa, Montreal and Toronto. And that was kind of our, our first year that we have. Now, now we actually run it as a, as a monthly virtual conference because we found that there were a lot of people that were outside of uh, Canada that wanted to take part in this. 
And so as it stands today, we run a monthly virtual conference. And then we have we splash in a few in-person events here and there. And along the lines, we, te we uh, piloted a few cities like Seattle. Uh, we did Atlanta. We did Orlando. And uh, now our platform and our framework is set up such that if somebody wants us to come run a live in-person event and they run a local community user group, we can wrap our framework around that and say, listen, you just have to find a little bit of funding for some flights for our speakers and we can we can bring them in we can bring in the platform you find the venue you find the people we'll bring the speakers and the content for you and that's kind of how we run it today um you you produce a lot of content you mentioned um uh and i wanted to ask you specifically about when you started publishing books so our uh when we were talking earlier in the introduction i was uh i was talking a little bit about um all of the work that we did for microsoft internally those were the coolest projects that one could do that sucked the absolute most because we were under strict NDA. None of the content could actually get released externally, but they were all books. And so, so the framework of this was actually training manuals in the form of technical deep dive books with access to internal confidential Microsoft information that they would train their support engineers with that would be probably 500 to 1,000 pages thick each that, you know, we were part of teams that would put these together. So every time they would come out with a new operating system, they have to train their support teams, right? And so uh, that goes on and on through all their different product suites. And so that's how we really got started. And it was really funny because the team that we worked with at Microsoft the most was called the Performance Platform Team. And so that was kind of a catch-all bucket where nobody knew how to fix stuff. The performance team took it. And so trying to write content for them was a, a little bit of a challenge, but it was really good content that a lot of other teams liked. And so our first experience getting published externally and kind of not getting any credit for it because we signed our names away was we were, we were at a, a chapters, um, just like a Barnes & Noble in the U.S., depending on where our, our viewership is from. Um, and we saw this resource kit. It was the Windows Vista resource kit, and it was so thick. It must have been 4,000 pages long, and uh, I was flipping through there, and I'm finding chapters that we'd written, like, word for word inside of there. And on the front it said, and special thanks to the performance team at Microsoft. <laughs> so, so that was our kind of our, our first real taste of uh, seeing what it would be like to get published in, in book format. And... Uh, and then, and then we started, um, we, we kind of dropped the whole book writing side of our business for probably a good six, seven years. And then we had just recently picked it up within about the last two years or so. So we, we found an independent uh, publisher that helped us publish a book about two years ago. And it was, it was, it was a little bit of a process to get that done, um, especially working through their editors. We didn't have priority with them. Uh, we had had the content finished for six months. By the time the book was finished, it was another three months after that. So now I've got technical content that's time dated by nine months. By the time that book launched, um, the entire thing was absolutely useless. And we sold probably about 40 copies of it because it was totally irrelevant. And at that point in time, we were pretty defeated. And, you know, there was a lot of work that went into that book because we wanted it to be absolutely perfect. And to be able to not sell it and not kind of get the, the credit due for it, it really hurt. It's done. So we, we dropped writing books again for about another year. 
and then it was December of 2016. Um, I decided that you know let's pick this up, but let's let's do it ourselves. So uh, I did some research and I found uh, Create Space with Amazon and Kindle Direct Publishing, and uh, that's kind of where we got our our kickstart. So in 2016 and 2017, we published. I think we ended up publishing one, two, three, four, five, six books on Amazon, and they were incredibly successful. We we moved about close to 30,000 copies of our books. But the problem that we found in found once again in working with um, Amazon was we had absolutely no experience in Kindle format. So understanding that a Kindle book is actually a glorified HTML web page that you're viewing. So formatting your book properly is actually kind of a really big deal. Um, that was a huge learning curve for us. So we've since figured out ways to outsource some of those components, but it once again really slowed down our process. And uh, and now uh, with the LeanPub um, platform, we're able to publish uh, early stage P PDF copies of our books for the content that we want to get out there right away. As we're working on building them into a ebook format, we're not slowed down. So as soon as the content is ready, like I'll give you a really great case in point. There's new versions of Microsoft System Center that just released February 7th. We're already in the process of updating all of our books to the latest version. We will quite literally be the first people in the world with books out on that particular product suite. Um, and we'll probably be three, four months ahead of everybody. And that's huge for us because then what we do is we take those books and we use them for our consulting and our um, our professional services practice where somebody wants to take a look at our body of work that we can do. Now what we do is we just point them straight at our LeanPub page and we say, hey, listen, go pick. That's your shopping cart. What do you want us to do? And we can give you something similar to that. Uh, thanks for that great answer. Um, that that leads me to my next question, which was I wanted. And this is this is the part of the interview where we get a little bit into the weeds, um, where people who are really interested in in self publishing can learn um, uh, important things about the different approaches that people have taken. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about your process. One thing uh, we noticed is that um, that's sort of relatively unique in your approach is that you'll 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 do a book, what we call a book writing purchase, where you pay to create a new book, uh, and then bam. You know, you update the you 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 add the data like about the book and the title and the authors and things like that, and then bam, you publish it. Um, that's 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 not the way most people do it. And you mentioned um, you outsource the part of this process, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your your strategy and how 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 it actually works. So I've I've got a I've got a team of uh, guys. We're a small team with our organization where we've got about probably four to six core members that we have. And I've been working over the course, uh, two of them have worked with me for over 11 years, one's going on 15 years. So we've worked together for a long time. So now as we do projects, what we do is we're smart about it. So a lot of the books are driven out of our consulting practice. So we've had to go flush out a bunch of these technical details. And now we're getting a lot smarter in the way that we produce our content to say, listen, if we take this format that we have that's viable for the book, um, and we generalize the content enough that we can kind of have two parallel versions, one for the client with their technical specifics and one for, you know, the public, um, the public to consume. Um, it's a lot faster for us to go through and build these. The second thing that we do is our lab guides that we have are completely automated by PowerShell and uh, powered by Microsoft Azure. 
so anybody can actually follow along with the books that we produce. But those are those are scripts that we probably have I don't know um, three thousand man hours into trying to figure out a bunch of the working working parts to to automate. And so what that allows us to do is very quickly spin up an environment that we can now showcase a product that we can show and install, build, configure, deployment guide that we don't have to go repeat a bunch of those steps again. So I look at writing books as a modular component because especially when we look at Microsoft publishing, um, most Microsoft products require a Microsoft SQL Server. Well, if I get the module that shows you how to deploy the SQL Server, I don't have to rewrite that module over and over again. It is relevant in the next book, but I can basically just plug in. I can take Chapter 2. Chapter 2 with deploying Microsoft SQL Server is now uh, universal. So now I can just plug that into the next book. Well, that could be 60 pages of content, but it's completely relevant for somebody that's reading that book from start to finish because they want to get the complete picture. They don't want to say, oh, well, uh, I showed you how to write, how to install SQL Server in version one of my book, so please go buy version one of my book and I'll give you the complete picture. We don't believe in that at all. We want to give somebody a start to finish process because the other thing that we've been doing with, with our books that we've been publishing is we hand them to our customers at the start of the project and say, listen, we want you to be operationalized in this technology please follow along with our guide as we deploy this. So now step-by-step step, as we're deploying things, that's the general guidance that we would follow with our customers as well. And so they can actually pen through the book as we're going through and doing the deployment saying, okay, yeah, I get it. And they can actually be a little bit ahead of us saying, listen, I checked page 47. I don't really understand that. What's going to happen when we do this? And we can really fill in the blanks with them. So it, so publishing for us is a, is a two-fold exercise. Number one is getting the content to the community. Number two, it's a vehicle for our consulting practice as well. Because I need to, as part of our any consulting engagement, I need to train them on the technology that we just put in. Now we're getting to train them on the fly. And what tools do you use in this process? You say you mentioned the, the PDF or you produce the PDF first. Um, what, what tools are people using to, to do that and to, to collaborate in this, in this way? So, so in a sense of just creating the, the PDFs. Yeah. So, so we've got, uh, we've got word document templates that, uh, that we work backwards from. So we've got a, a common template that everybody's very familiar with. Um, the writing styles and things like that. Once you've done enough technical writing, there's a certain feel that you have for building technical content. Um, and that's what we'll traditionally do. The other thing that we do is we're not scared to pre-publish a book at 75% complete either, because we it might take us a little while to finish the other 25%. So that's another thing that we love about the LeanPub platform that you have is you allow us to put a slider in there saying we're 75% complete and we can update new versions as they come out to our subscriber base saying, hey, listen, we just went through a big editorial pass and we've cleaned this up. Please download your new PDF. And the awesome part about that is we get a touch point back continually with our subscriber base so that it's not just publish a book, read it, okay, forget about the author, two years later, come back to them. No, we have a, a constant point of contact with them. And we picked up projects all over the world because of this. One of my most recent projects that I have is we're actually helping out a, a good-sized university 
in Saudi Arabia that was directly based off of them reading our book. They had some problems deploying the set of Microsoft technologies. They contacted us on Twitter of all places and they said, hey, listen, we're stuck. We can't get this working. We read through your book. It looks like it'll fix some of our problems, but we're not comfortable doing it. We'd like to use some of your consulting um, services time to fix this. And so for, for me, that's the real utopia of writing books. We're not going to get, you know, I would love to say I'm going to get rich off of writing books, but writing technical books is uh, it's difficult to, to make a lot of money at them. The utopia for me is that we're able to help people, number one. Number two is if I can pick up a couple consulting services engagements out of it, then it's totally worth it because it's free marketing for me. Thanks for that really great story that, um, uh, I mean, in many ways, you're the kind of perfect lean pub uh, author. Uh, in, in that, with that description, um, uh, one of the sort of the origin stories of lean pub is that, um, from the, when you're writing technical books, the people who want them, um, want them, <clears throat> they don't care if the book is complete and they don't care if the book is perfect. They have a profound need, like you were describing with this organization yeah. in Saudi Arabia for your help. And so if a book is 75% done, that's like, wow, 75%, you know, <laughs> let's get going. Uh, if, if, if this is going to help us solve problems or get, 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 you know, over an impasse, uh, we want the information as soon as possible. And especially when things in the technology world evolve rapidly, um, the ability to get information without sitting behind a kind of, you know, I would call it a kind of print publishing legacy process, uh, is really important. Um, well, and to that, to that point, that process is horrible. That traditional process, trying to work with a publisher that's set in their ways, write your book, chapter by chapter. Give us all the screenshot copies that you have in a separate file format. Now we're going to go through a technical editorial pass, but our technical editors aren't available till the next week. Then they'll spend a week editing that chapter. Then three weeks later, you'll get it back. Then you have to get it turned around in a certain amount of time. It's a really, really, really painful process. It's not... It's not like we're taking and authoring a, a novel where, you know, the chapter's done and we'll go edit it. No, because by the time we're by the time we circle all the way back around, you have to get your head back into the headspace of chapter one to even write in that framework again. And it's really hard to, to pick stuff up over and over again. And it just it, it slows things down. Now, I understand that when you're when you're when you're writing a book and it's supposed to be fit and finished and all the polish is supposed to be there because it's going to sit on a bookshelf in you know Barnes and Noble or chapters or wherever the you know your favorite library or wherever it is there's a lot more work that goes into getting that finished in that sense and so for us what we do is we start with our books and we're looking at lean pub as the front wave you want our content right away here you go if you want a print copy of our book then within a certain amount of time after that after we get things to 100% completion with it then what we'll do is we'll take that and we'll go to something like a create space at Amazon and Create Space at Amazon gives us an amazing vehicle to sell those print copies of the book as a self-publisher. And now they're really nice for us when we go away and we do in-person um, conferences. Because now uh, somebody that's downloaded my LeanPub book, for example, in the PDF format, I can have now a print copy with a nice glossy cover that looks amazing. And I can say, here you go. You want something, we can sign it for you. We can we can give them away. We can sell them. We can do whatever at that point in time. But the pressure's off us at that point in time because, once again, we treat the process of authoring books as not our main line of revenue. 
it's a, it's a channel of marketing and awareness and brand development because that is one of the biggest challenges that individuals will have when they start to work with communities. You have to build your personal brand. And the way that you're going to build your personal brand is having a tangible asset that somebody wants and you, you want them to keep coming back. You don't want to just, you know, get them to download something once. You want them to uh, create a relationship with you where they feel that, wow, I've got version one of his book, version two, version three, and now they're spawned off and these other things. And and so so that's a big part of it. And so our goal with MVP Days Publishing was to try to teach other Microsoft MVPs how to author books. And so in 2017, I think we had 10 first-time authors. So we had 10 first-time authors that we helped uh, publish their first books. And the smile that they had on their face when they got their proof copy from Amazon CreateSpace of their books with their name on it was, was pretty cool. Even if they only did a couple chapters in it, they were helping with the process. And that's what that Master PowerShell, Master PowerShell trick series is is there's, uh, there's a handful of, uh, of, of us that are out in the field that just, let's say we've got 10 great ideas. Well, take, take those 10 great ideas. It doesn't make a book on its own, but five from you, 10 from you, three from you, six from you, that can be compiled into something that's, that's great. And that, that's actually been our, our most popular series that we've had to date, that Master PowerShell Tricks series. If I go back and check the numbers on, uh, on Amazon, because we just started publishing that with you guys, Pretty sure we're well north of 20,000 copies that have either been sold or given away to the community. So we did one promotion. Amazon lets you do a few promotions a quarter. So we did one promotion where we gave away the entire series for free and we gave away 15,000 copies in two days. And, and that was pretty cool just to see it go viral. Like you just watch your sales, your sales numbers just go. And then you see the bestsellers list on Amazon and you're number one, you're number one, you're number one. Our books were one, two, three on Amazon inside of uh, inside of our category for Windows administration, which was pretty cool because there are some pretty big time authors in there. Yeah, that's a that's an amazing story. And congratulations on your success. That's um, uh, as I think people listening could gather from the strategy and years of work and experience behind it. It's it's not easy to get there for mo most of the time. But when you do get there, it can be very rewarding. Um, my next question is usually my last question, but I'm going to save a special one uh, for the end, um, if there was one thing about LeanPub that we could build for you, or one thing we could fix for you, what would you ask us to do? Well, we're we're pretty new uh, with with LeanPub right now, so I don't really have any complaints about the the format. Um, I think maybe having the ability to take and have multiple streams of videos on the book page would be handy because right now we can link in a single uh, a single source of media from YouTube in there, um, but there might be different references to different chapters in the book that might be handy. And to be able to cascade those into maybe a frame-based view where you could show maybe four videos in, in a different uh, crosshair view saying, okay, you want to check out, let's say, let's hear one of my authors, Thomas Rayner, talk about this chapter in PowerShell, but I have a second author and he'll tell you about this. So just like for a multi, a multi-author segue, that would be pretty cool. And I don't really think that that would be a major uh, development change, but that would be pretty neat to be able to have that because sometimes there's more content that we want to get out there. And for myself personally, when I go to buy something, I want to watch a video on it first. 
I'm, I'm of that generation that I want to check it out. I want to do my research. And if there's a video there, I will click on the video link to see what it's kind of about. And so I like that ability right now, but that's one thing that I would ask for kind of a future. Yeah, thanks for that really specific recommendation. I'll pass that along to the team. Um, we're uh, pretty small ourselves and we've got a lot on our plate, but that's um, the, the more what we find is the more information and the more content that you can provide before someone buys it, uh, the more it helps you convert someone into buying it. Uh, partly it's, and even, even if they kind of don't watch it, just knowing that you put in the effort to make a video um, or multiple videos um, can really help drive sales and build confidence. And, and as, as you're talking about, you know, branding, like every piece of content you put out there helps build that brand, which is one of the very important things about both self-publishing and consulting as well. Um, my last question is, um, growing, one of the things about growing up in Saskatchewan and liking hockey is that you don't have a team locally to cheer for. Um, I know uh, you you moved to Calgary, but um, uh, a lot of people in Saskatchewan are fans of teams from across the country because of that experience growing up teamless. I've been a Habs fan my whole life. Um, what team do you support? So when I was in Saskatchewan, I was a huge Gretzky fan. So I was a big time Edmonton Oilers uh, fan. Um, then Gretzky got traded to L.A., so then I became an L.A. Kings fan and kind of wherever he went were kind of my teams that I would really like and now I'm I'm a heart and soul Calgary Flames fan so nothing makes me happier when the Vancouver Canucks come in and Calgary can beat them at home or Edmonton comes into town and we can beat them at home so well thanks thanks very much Dave uh, best best wishes to the uh to the Flames for the rest of the season or next season um uh, and uh, thanks very much uh, for taking the time again for for taking the time to do this interview. I I learned a lot. Um, I really enjoyed hearing about your process um, and your background, which is uh, which is um, an unusual and very interesting one. Um, uh, and thanks also very much for uh, using LeanPub and for being a LeanPub author. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, my absolute pleasure to sit down with you today. Thanks.